Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Ephesians 3, 14. We're going to be looking at Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. And this kind of came up uh, when Lee was here. You remember when Lee was here preaching to us, he, uh, I think it was at the dinner, he talked about a three, Ephesians 3, the, the church, and the, the mystery of God being revealed through the church and to the church. And I read on afterwards and saw this passage, and I thought, you know, that's, that's really interesting what Paul's talking about there. And then it sparked a whole series of questions about the Holy Spirit and his role and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and what does that mean, and all of these questions that everybody always has about the Holy Spirit. And I understand you guys talked about some of that on Wednesday night as well. Uh, so that was a good primer. Um, hopefully I don't step on toes, but we'll... <laughs> We'll see when we get through this. Um, but hopefully that was a good primer for you all. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll see what the Lord has to show us about the Holy Spirit and his working and his role, uh, both in this hour and in the next. So we're going to look at a couple of different aspects of the Holy Spirit and his work. Uh, read with me here, Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Let's pray. Lord God, be with us this morning as we um, delve into your word. Help me to be a good steward of the talents that you've given me. And um, Lord, I pray that your word rightly divided through me would be uh, edifying to the gathered saints here and most importantly, glorifying to you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this is one of those passages that's doctrinally rich. Um, We could preach several messages on any number of aspects of this passage. We, we have Paul here praying for the saints. Obviously, Paul often talks about our need to be praying for the saints, praying for one another. Um, we could talk about that. Uh, we could talk about several other things in this passage. Uh, certainly precedents um, for a lot of this, Paul praying for other churches also. Uh, and we need to be praying for other churches But this morning, I want to focus on one section of this passage, and that's verse 16. Paul says, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. What does Paul mean by this? We're going to take a look at that. First, I think it's important to understand Paul's audience. As we've learned on our Wednesday night studies, with anything that we do when we study the word of God, we need to look at our audience, right? Uh, These... Obviously, this was meant for the Ephesians, but is anybody here an Ephesian? No, but by extension, Paul meant this letter to be delivered to all the other churches as well, and to be delivered uh, by God's power through us, to us, um, so that we might grow by it also. So, yes, this was written to the Ephesians, but it was written to us as well, but it's helpful for us to understand who the Ephesians were in order to properly interpret what the Scripture is saying. Um, Ephesus was located along the GNC. Uh, it's an important hub, uh, trade hub for the Roman uh, world. Uh, 
Uh, who, who can tell me what Ephesus was famous for? Yeah, Michael. Yes, very good. So uh, uh, Ephesus was the location of the temple of the god Artemis. So Greeks, in the Greek culture, they have 12 gods and goddesses, 12 main gods and goddesses. There are other uh, demigods and fairies and whatever, but Artemis was one of the 12 uh, main Greek gods and goddesses. Uh, that's actually where the temple of Artemis is located, and that's actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So this is one of the largest temples in any of the ancient world, the temple of Artemis. Artemis was responsible for uh, overseeing childbirth, among other things, uh, overseeing uh, the animals and the birth of animals and things like that. So the interesting thing about the Greek religion, why that's important about Artemis, um, they look to the physical representation of their gods and goddesses for their source of power, strength, and security and protection. So the physical representation of the Greek gods actually is where their provision of security and strength came from. So you can imagine in the city of Ephesus, uh, with the temple of Artemis there and these sculptures of Artemis there, uh, this was a very well-protected, powerful city, according to the Greek world. The city itself was thought to be under the protection of the gods. In fact, the ancient Greeks believed that the location of the temple of the gods provided them great protection and strength. This was above and beyond some of the other uh, places. Men in the Greek uh, society particularly um, were uh, thought to be under the protection of the gods. Uh, wealthy men, um, great men in the Greek society were thought to be under the protection and have the strength of the gods themselves. Ironically, uh, the temple of the goddess of Artemis uh, the goddess Artemis, the source of, of the power of the gods. So the temple is the source of the power. Ironically, this temple was destroyed several times throughout ancient history. Um, three that we know of, and probably others as well, three that were documented. We say, you know, that, that, that should have given them some kind of clue that this god wasn't as powerful as they thought. Um, the fact that this temple was destroyed three times. Uh, one of the times it was by fire, um, another time it's by an earthquake, another time by a flood. Um, so multiple times throughout ancient history, this temple was destroyed. One of the times to explain this away, and for the Greek culture, yes, our temple is the source of power. It's the, our goddess is the source of power, strength, and protection. Yes, the temple got destroyed, but it's okay because Artemis was away overseeing the birth of Alexander. That's why the temple was allowed to be destroyed. So you can imagine the, the uh, loops, the, the, the extent that people would go to to try and explain these things away when our symbol of power of the gods is destroyed. The point is that these were very religious people who looked to their gods and goddesses as a source of strength and power and protection, and especially to the symbols and temples of those gods. So you can imagine... The, ma the message of the gospel, God is bringing the message of a, a God who was crucified. Uh, we don't have temples anymore. Uh, we don't have symbols that are made by hands. We don't have idols. So this message that Paul is bringing to these Greek people is totally radical to them. It's completely different to their religious worldview. Right? 
Um, you can imagine that it might leave some folks with some unanswered questions when Paul left. So turn, with, uh, turn to Acts 19. We're going to look at Acts 19 real quick. Acts 19 is the account of Paul's time in Ephesus. So we'll start reading there in, in verse, uh, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. Hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So in verses 1 through 7, we see that the account of the Holy, Scripture, uh, Holy Spirit coming upon the 12 in Ephesus. Just as at Pentecost, the power of the Holy Spirit was displayed in the speaking of tongues, flaming fire, prophesying, um, the formative scene established there in this first part of Acts in Ephesus, um, it's, it's talking about the foundation of the church at Ephesus. And over the next two years, in verse 10, we see in verse 10 later on, over the next two years, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul stayed two years in Ephesus and preached the word to them. And all the, um, uh, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, uh, just as a side note here, the context here for all. So is Paul saying all, every man, woman, and child in all of Asia heard the gospel during this time. No, he gives us the context for all. Uh, you guys have heard it said all means all, all the time. Tim has talked about that several times from the pulpit. Here is an example where all doesn't mean all, every man, woman, and child. It means all Jews and Greeks. So uh, Paul is being inclusive in that um, uh, language. He spoke both in the synagogues and then in the Greek halls. Um, so we see that all there refers to both the Jews and the Greeks. In verse 11 through 20, we see the account of the sons of Sceva. We don't have to read that. You guys remember that account, uh, the sons of Sceva, um, where they had uh, seen everything that Paul was doing. They'd seen the power. Uh, these were the sons of the high priest, the Jewish high priest. And they'd seen what's going on and thought that they could conjure up the same power that was displayed in Paul. Paul was healing folks. He was, they were speaking in tongues. There was different things going on. And the sons of Sceva thought that they could conjure up the same power. So if you remember these Greeks who lived there, there was a lot of um, mystical things going on. There was a lot of uh, magical spells happening, all in the name of Artemis, right? So the sons of Sceva thought that they could do some of the things that Paul was doing, uh, and we see what happened with them. That kind of backfired on them, didn't it? So they tried to cast out some demons uh, in the name of Paul, and the demons came on them, and they ended up fleeing out of the temple naked, right? So backfired on them. Um, yeah, and... When that happened, when that plan backfired, the name of Jesus was proclaimed enthusiastically uh, throughout the region. 
We see a similar uh, thing here, the sons of Sceva in Acts 8, 9, 24. You don't need to turn there, but that's the account of Simon Magus, Simon the magician, who saw the things that the apostles were doing. He saw this power that they had uh, and thought that he could purchase that power. He wanted to purchase that so that he could be puffed up by being able to do the things that the disciples were doing, right? Simon the magician. That's in uh, Acts 8, uh, 24, I believe. 9 through 24. Next, in verse 18 of Acts 19, we see that there are many new converts, and they were confessing and divulging their practices, bringing their books and spells and magical arts together to be burned. So this scene is pretty amazing, actually. So here we have this very religious city who obviously the magicians and the the temple, the folks who were in the temple were doing magical spells and doing all these things. Well, Suddenly, now, when Paul comes and starts preaching this, now they start divulging their secrets. Have you guys seen that show on TV? It's, uh, it's about the magicians, like when somebody, this, this magician, I think he's in a black mask, he starts revealing the magician's secrets. And so all these, all these magic tricks that you've seen throughout history, I remember watching David Copperfield on TV, those specials um, that, uh, that they used to have on TV. I remember watching those and thinking, that's amazing. He's like... He's really doing magic, you know, <laughs> and uh, and then later on to have somebody come and divulge the secrets of what he was doing, how he did that, and just being just thinking, wow, that, wow, I, I was really fooled then. So these people are coming out of the woodwork and they're bringing their books of magic spells and their magical arts and they're burning those books and they're divulging all the secrets of, uh, you know, if you imagine in the ancient world causing fire to come out of something or causing something to catch on fire and and then some magician if you had no idea seeing that going this must be artemis this is the power of artemis right Um, but then to have that same magician come and say well here's how i did it Uh, and then you go well that wasn't artemis at all that wasn't any kind of special magical power at all so that was the scene that we see and then uh in verse 21 we see this caused a great uproar among the entire city. Here are these believers divulging all their secrets and of their magical practices of those who likely done these things in the name of the gods. And by doing so, they were undermining the power of the silver shrines and talismans that were being sold in the city. So you had these tradesmen who were making silver shrines um, where you can imagine the, one of these uh, magicians, uh, one of these men who had the power of Artemis, doing some kind of spell or incantation and then making smoke come out of something like that uh, and then selling a bunch of little silver statues. See, you can have the same power by just buying one of these little statues. We see that today, don't we? We see that with the, the sweat cloths that are sold from on, on TBN. You know, you should buy some of this, uh, buy, buy this sweat rag, uh, buy this holy water, uh, you know, what was the latest one? It was a, a little vial of water from uh, from somewhere. I don't remember where it was. I, I remember that was on TV for a long time. So a riot breaks out, and the unbelievers appeal to the power of Artemis to remove these followers of the way from the city. In verse 35, we see something similar to Gamaliel's re- reasoning being used. And this is... Uh, 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 this uh, Gamaliel is a, uh, the account is in Acts five thirty nine, uh, but this same type of mentality is used 
by the leader in this, uh, in this town. He says, look, you guys know that this is the city of Artemis. You know how powerful Artemis is. You know we saw this rock come down from the sky. It was probably a meteor that landed somewhere, and they assumed that that was Artemis coming down uh, and where we'd established this temple. If you know those things to be true, why are you worried about these guys preaching this gospel about a dead God, a God who'd been crucified? He has no power. Don't worry about it, right? Um, so that was kind of the same mentality of uh, Gamaliel. Uh, of course, he understood that Christ was going to return. And so Gamaliel tells them, look, if, if, this, is of the, if this is of God, you may find yourself be fighting against God. The opposite is true here, where this man is telling them, look, we know that they're, this is not God right? So don't worry about it. Why are you getting so upset about this whole thing happening? So that was the scene in Ephesus when Paul left. So you can imagine there was still a little bit of uproar and unrest going on in the city uh, when Paul left there. In our text today, Paul's writing to these same believers and encouraging them to continue in the faith and spirit in spite of their likely tendency to return to their old practices. So that's a long way to go about trying to show you the mentality of these believers that were in Ephesus. It's, it's not a culture like ours. Sometimes it's hard to understand these cultures unless you really delve deep into who they are and what kind of things that they practiced beforehand. So in our text, Paul says, for this reason, reason it starts with that statement, for this reason. For what reason, Paul? So anytime you see for this reason or because of or in light of this, uh, we need to look back and figure out what exactly is being talked about there. Paul says, for this reason, and for the reason, we need to look back to verse 1. And Paul uses that again. He says, for this reason. But then he gets sidetracked by establishing his credibility. So Paul does this often in his, in his letters. You'll see he, he begins to make an argument, and then he kind of gets sidetracked and talks about his credibility, or, or he talks about the... Um, the faith, like he goes d- deeper in, and then he has to come back to what he says. So you'll see him come back to his argument after he gets sidetracked. So for the immediate context of Paul's thought this morning, for this reason, we need to look at the end of chapter 2. Remember that the chapter and verse uh, divisions weren't present during the writing of this letter. It was a letter that was meant to be read aloud and in full to the Ephesians. So for this reason, we have to go back to the end of verse 2 to find out the reason that Paul is praying for the Ephesians. The reason that Paul is on his knees praying before the Father is found in verse 17, chapter 2, verse 17. He says, And he, Christ, came and preached to you who were far off, who were once far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Our text this morning, for this reason I bow my knees to the Father, that according to the riches of his glory, 
he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So you can see how that argument flows. For this reason, I bow my knees so that you can be, by the, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. He's contrasting what the Ephesians had always been accustomed to. Right? There's this temple that is present here. I'm talking about a temple that's not present. There are these idols that represent the power of God. Well, I'm talking about a power of God that's within you. He's contrasting this new relationship with Jesus in contrast to what they'd always believed and practiced in their Greek um, tradition. You can almost imagine the questions from the Ephesian believers, in fact, both Jew and Greek, that Paul was answering. Uh, Where is our temple, Paul? Where does our strength come from? In that passage in verse 17, we see, well, your strength comes from within. It comes from Christ. It comes from the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are a temple. He's preparing a temple for the Holy Spirit. So we are the temple, and our power and strength comes from the Holy Spirit in our inner being. And Paul prays that we might have that strength. Strength to do what? This is important, and this is where we start getting into some controversy. Strength to do what? Certainly coming from a Greek background and having seen some of the works that have been done through Paul and the early disciples, they were healing, speaking in tongues, prophesying. Uh, they might have thought that Paul was talking about continuing these types of outward displays of power, right? Continue to speak in tongues, continue to perform healings, continue, continue to prophecy, those kinds of things. That's what they would have thought when Paul says, I'm praying for you to have the power of the Holy Spirit continue in you, right? But Paul answers this question in verse 17 and 18. He says, so that, so what, strength to do what? Verse 17 and 18 of our text. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts, and so that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We are being built into a temple, a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit, the knowledge of Christ is being revealed in us and to us by the Holy Spirit so that we may, for the reason that we may comprehend the breadth and length and depth of God and to be filled with the fullness of God. This was a radically different view of God than the other pagan religions, and we talked a little bit about that. And it was even radically different to the Jews. Their false gods were separated from the people and dwelt in temples, huge uh, temples that could be torn down. Uh, sometimes inapproachable by mere man. But we have a God who indwells our inner being, who is near to each of us who are his children. We are filled with the fullness of God. So Paul here is talking about something very important. He's talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit here. Now, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, sometimes there's this discrepancy between the indwelling of the Spirit and the infilling of the Spirit, Right? So the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a one-time thing. It happens at conversion. All of us who believe in the name of Christ have been indwelt permanently by the Holy Spirit, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. So Paul is not talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit here. He's not talking about that particular moment, and how do we know that? We know, and Paul knew, that the Holy Spirit was already indwelling every believer because Paul tells us as much in the beginning of this, of this letter, right? So Paul tells us in chapter 1, verse 3, you can look there, chapter 1, verse 3, 
He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So we know he's not talking about a coming on of the Holy Spirit because we've already been blessed with every blessing in the spiritual, in the, um, uh, sorry. Lost my place. We've already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But then in verse 13, so chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says, In him, Christ, you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So we're not talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Paul's already told the Ephesians that these believers have been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. He also tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3.16, and you don't need to turn there, but he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Same thing, he's talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So what is he praying for? What is Paul praying for here? What is he on his knees before the Father praying for that they might see the power of the Holy Spirit? We already have the Holy Spirit. Is it possible to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit and not have the power and strength of the Holy Spirit? Yeah. So if you think about that, Each of us here is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Each of us who are believing is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We have the permanent Holy Spirit. But we don't always experience the power of the Holy Spirit, right? And that's what Paul is talking about here. That's what he's praying for these Ephesian believers. He's praying for the power of the Holy Spirit to come um, for a specific reason, which we will talk about. Um, But he's talking about something different than the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's helpful to look at the role of the Holy Spirit Um, maybe that will help us to understand how a believer, having been sealed and indwelled by the Holy Spirit, might not know the power and strength of the Holy Spirit. We've already looked at a few of these, but um, we're going to look at, I don't know, it's like 13 or 14. The number kept changing uh, as I was going through and studying outworkings of the Holy Spirit, outworkings of this power of the Holy Spirit, something that the Holy Spirit does in our lives. Um, so he builds us into a dwelling place for God. That's Ephesians 1.22. We just read that. The, the other thing about these, as we go through this list, I want you to think about, we have a definitive account of what the Holy Spirit does, of, of what his job is, what his role is. So much of what the Holy Spirit does is kind of relegated to this mystical world of um, incantations and uh, glitter coming down from the ceiling and laughing and, and slapping and punching and people being you know, knocked over by the Holy Spirit. What you're going to see from the text, from the scripture itself, we don't have accounts of any of that. Uh, the Holy Spirit doing any of those things. Um, so it's obvious to us who have been accustomed to rightly dividing the word that what, what's happening in some of those churches is not the Holy Spirit at all. Um, but we need to look at what the Holy Spirit does do. Uh, we're going to talk in the next hour about negative exegesis versus positive exegesis, right? Negative exegesis is saying this is not what it says, right? But we need to say it, this is what it says, right? We need to be able to divide what this is what it says. So the Holy Spirit builds us into a dwelling place for God. This is Ephesians 1.22, and I'm just going to go down this list, and you can list them if you like. If you need me to slow down or... 
Uh, go back, just raise your hand, let me know, get my attention. Uh, two, he reminds us of the knowledge of Christ and teaches us so that we may comprehend the breadth and length and depth of God. That's our, passion, our passage here in Ephesians 3, but also John fourteen twenty six. You remember John fourteen twenty six. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. He bears witness about Christ. This is John fifteen twenty six. He bears witness about Christ. But the Helper, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. He convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. John 16, 18, or 16, 8. John 16, 8. He convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He guides us to truth, declares the things that are to come, glorifies Christ, and declares all that belongs to Christ. John 16, 13 through 15. He imparts God's wisdom. This is 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 2. He imparts God's wisdom. He enlightens the eyes of our hearts that we might have wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. Ephesians 1, 16 through 21. So he enlightens our eyes and our hearts that we might have wisdom. Wisdom about what? Revelation about what? about the knowledge of Christ. He imparts the gifting of spiritual gifts to believers for the common good. This is 1 Corinthians 12. He helps us in our weakness and intercedes for us. Romans 8, 26 through 27. He gives us spiritual life. Romans 8, 10 through 11. He sanctifies us. 2 Thessalonians two thirteen. He sanctifies us. This is the one that I think is really interesting that we, we don't uh, often hear talked about. He washes, cleanses, and regenerates us. So we, we tend to think of the work of regeneration and the work of washing and cleansing to be the work of the Father and the Son. But here we're told in, in Titus 3, 4 through 7, that this is actually the work of the Holy Spirit regenerating us. And we're going to talk in the next hour about John 3, 1 through uh, 15. Um, But he washes, cleanses, and regenerates us. He justifies us. Here's another one that we don't often think about with the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. He justifies us. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, we read, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. The Holy Spirit is the one who justifies us. He's our seal and guarantee securing our inheritance in Christ. That's Ephesians 4.30. Our seal and guarantee concerning our inheritance of Christ. And he's with us permanently. So we see that in John 14, 16 through 17. He's with us permanently. So that's nearly the extent of the New Testament revelation of what the Holy Spirit does. Notice what you didn't hear in any of that. Most of the things that the Holy Spirit is accredited for today, we don't hear any of that in the Scripture. We see all kinds of things that the Holy Spirit is given credit for. In fact, 99% of the things that the Holy Spirit um, is accredited for are not mystical. They're not 
uh, displays of power. They're not anything that we don't experience here every day and every time we open our word, every time we open the scripture. When we believe, we also experience those things. But some churches tend to focus on that small percentage, that 0.1 percentage of the work of the Holy Spirit that has to do with prophesying, speaking in tongues, and healing. Right? The vast majority of the Holy Spirit's work has to do with revealing the truth about Christ. And yet, some people spend their whole lives focusing on that small portion of the Holy Spirit's work that has to do with prophesying, speaking in tongues, and healings. I think that's very telling. The Holy Spirit is seen by some as some kind of mystical and personal force that can be drawn upon for any sort of need. We see that from the scriptures, this can't be any further from the truth. The Holy Spirit is God of very God with a specific role to perform within the Trinity. He has a specific defined role within the Trinity. His primary role is to reveal to us the truth of God's Word, which tells us of our need for a Savior and points us to Christ as that Savior. There's equal danger of putting too much emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit, as the Charismatics have done, and putting too little emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit, as even some in the Reformed tradition have done. So we can go to both extremes. We can put too much emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit and specifically too much emphasis on the work of 1% of what the Holy Spirit does. And the other end of the spectrum is to discount the work of the Holy Spirit altogether. Right? So some, like the sons of Sceva, Simon Magus, the TBN crowd, they seek to obtain and use the power of the Holy Spirit for personal gain. Others call on the Holy Spirit to elicit some kind of feeling or emotional experience. Still others take the let go and let God mentality to the extreme of believing that the Holy Spirit guides our every thought, action, and deed. Well, I I can just not think. I don't have to um, be responsible for anything because the Holy Spirit guides everything I do and think and say. Right? Uh, That's His role, to guide everything I do and think and say. So uh, He is responsible for all of that. And I don't have any responsible for any of it. Without us having conscious control over those things. And by doing that, you leave our responsibility to work, to learn, to study, to pray, to discern, and to act according to God's word. Those things that we're told throughout scripture that are the role of the Christian. right? To work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. To study the word of God. Um, to... Uh, Pray to discern, to act according to God's word. This also removes any accountability. Because so many don't know about the role of the Holy Spirit, to challenge someone who's abusing or misusing this power, the tendency is to to abandon discernment for fear of quenching the Holy Spirit. How many of you have seen or heard something that you thought, "That, that doesn't sound quite right, and somebody says, well, the Holy Spirit has led me to do this, or the Holy Spirit put it on my heart, this certain thing, right? And you go, that, that, does, that doesn't sound right. But, but they said it was the Holy Spirit, so I don't want to quench the Holy Spirit, so maybe it was, you know. A lot of that stems from the fact that there's still a lot of mystery wrapped around the working of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I'm, I'm hoping this morning that we can do is kind of remove some of that mystery, 
The Holy Spirit's role is to reveal Christ to us. That's it. The Holy Spirit's role is not to reveal to us who we're going to marry. The Holy Spirit is not to reveal to us which gas station we're going to go to. That's not his role. His role is to reveal to us the Word of God and to reveal to us Christ. Right? So when somebody comes along and says, well, the Holy Spirit revealed this or that to me, um, and it's not the Scripture, and it's not Christ, we can say confidently, that may not be the Holy Spirit. That's, that's probably your own spirit leading you to those things. But we're scared to do that a lot of times because we don't want to quench the Holy Spirit, right? We don't want to squash somebody's uh, Holy Spirit guidance. But the opposite of, the, of this, these are the, the frozen chosen. Uh, you know, Reformed folks have been called that. For those of you guys who haven't been around very long, Reformed folks are often called the frozen chosen, right? No emotions, sit in your seats, don't raise your hands, no spirit fingers, um, look straight forward. <laughs> You know what spirit fingers are, Pam. Yeah, spirit fingers, you know. <laughs> yeah. So we're the frozen chosen, right? Anything, anything of spiritual or supernatural nature is something to be suspicious of. All right? Anything of spiritual or supernatural, is, we're, we're suspicious immediately about that. Uh, we're like, nope, suspect. I'm calling, calling that into question. We're called to be discerning, yes, but not automatically suspicious without emotion or feeling. I fall into that camp sometimes. Um, I, I know some of you do as well. All feelings and emotion are suspect. Uh, the, the way I grew up, and I, I guess I was burned a lot of times by feelings and emotions, uh, and so I've kind of said, no, we're not, uh, we're not doing anything on feeling or emotion. Um, the, the beauty of the Holy Spirit is that we can experience His presence. We can experience that feeling and emotion that comes with being indwelled by the Holy Spirit. But it's been so hijacked by the emotional movements of the day that we, we frozen chosen, have kind of said, nope, that's suspect. That's dangerous. Let's keep that away. So I think that's equally as dangerous as putting too much emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes that causes us to think that a perfectly worded gospel presentation, perfect theological argument, has the power to, uh, in itself to convince people of their need for a Savior. And what we're doing, we don't realize what we're doing when we do that, when we say, well, I just have to have the perfect gospel presentation. I just need to deliver the exact wording to this person, and that's going to cause them to be saved. What we're doing is we're discounting the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, his work in regenerating, enlivening, and revealing the truth of God's Word to His people. So back to our question this morning. Can a believer be indwelled by the Holy Spirit and not have the power of the Holy Spirit? Well, Paul obviously thought so, um, which is why he is so earnestly praying for the believers at Ephesus. He's praying for them to experience the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit. And we talked about for what, not so that they can speak in tongues, not so that they can... Uh, do the healings that he's doing, not so that they can prophesy, but so that they can know who Jesus is, right? Well, how does this happen? How does it, how do we get to the point where we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, but are not filled with the Holy Spirit? 
we know that the Holy Spirit can be resisted, grieved, and quenched. How do we know that? These are believers who are resisting, quenching, and grieving the Holy Spirit. Acts 7, 51. Uh, you can turn there if you like. Acts 7, 51. Stephen, uh, just before he is executed, he levels this accusation against the Jews. He says there, uh, there he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, Stephen is actually referring to an Old Testament uh, passage, Isaiah 63.10. Uh, that's a reference that he's giving there. Um, where it says, you stiff-necked people, uncircum- uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. We might say, well, of course the Jews, of course they can resist the Holy Spirit. They don't even have the Holy Spirit, right? Well, we need to look a little bit closer. Uh, Paul disagrees that it's just the Jews. In fact, later in Ephesians 4.30, we talked about this verse, he says to the same Christians that we've been talking, that he's been talking to, that were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, he says to them, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So these are people who are sealed by the Holy Spirit who have grieved the Holy Spirit. The Thessalonians were quenching the Holy Spirit by despising prophecy. That's in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 20. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 20. Uh, Something similar there is he's talking to the Ephesians. Uh, They were quenching, quenching the Holy Spirit by despising prophecy. Now keep in mind here, prophecy is not what we tend to think about prophecy or what prophecy is. Uh, often um, thought of as it's not foretelling of the future. It's not foretelling future events. This is proclaiming the word of God, right? So in a lot of ways, the Thessalonians were kind of guilty of uh, men coming along, proclaiming the word of God, and then being immediately suspect of that, right? And that's what we're talking about by quenching the Holy Spirit. Uh, We know that they're talking about telling... uh, proclaiming God's word and not telling, uh, foretelling the future because we can test what happens in the future. We can't test what happens in the future, but we can test what's being reported to be the word of God. We can test it against the rest of scriptures, right? But if somebody comes reporting to be telling of the future or future events, there's no way for us to test that, right? So that can't be from the Holy Spirit. That's not what Paul's talking here about here to the Thessalonians. As believers, we can resist, grieve, and quench the Holy Spirit, but not ultimately. For we need to make clear, um, as God, God of very God, the Holy Spirit is sovereign. The Holy Spirit will have his way. Um, He is not subject to believers, um, or anybody, for that matter. In fact, we're going to talk in the next hour about work of the Holy Spirit that can't be resisted, grieved, or quenched. While we can resist them for a time and deprive ourselves of being filled with the Spirit, there must be evidence of growth and sanctification in the believer. Why? Because that's what the Spirit does. Right? That's one of his roles, revealing the truth to us, sanctifying us, growing us, all those things. So if the believer is, in fact, dwelled by the Holy Spirit, as they claim, um, then we should see this growth. We should see this sanctification. So they might be able to grieve the Spirit for a time, but not ultimately. 
If you find yourself lacking in knowledge, wisdom, discernment, and understanding of the breadth, width, height, and depth of Christ, you may just be resisting, grieving, or quenching the Holy Spirit. We should pray, as Paul does, that God might fill us with the power and strength of the Holy Spirit in our inner being, that we might know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, and that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. If you find yourself lacking in any of those things, it could be that you're not indwelled by the Holy Spirit at all. And that should be a frightening prospect. So I pray that he might grant you the knowledge of the truth about Christ. And he's faithful to do just that. The Holy Spirit's work will be done. uh, And he's faithful to do that in all of our hearts.